Support for Utah Public Radio programming comes from our members and Golden West Insurance Services, providing Utah State University alumni affordable options on auto, homeowners, RV, and umbrella policies. Available at any Golden West or USU Credit Union branch from Logan to St. George. Details at usucu.org. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in April. When Kate Washington and her husband Brad learned that he had cancer, they were a young couple, professionals with ascending careers, parents to two small children. Brad's diagnosis stripped those identities away. He became a patient and she his caregiver. Brad's cancer quickly turned aggressive and Kate acted as his full-time aide to keep him alive. She became so burned out that when she took an online quiz at a caregiver on caregiver self-care, her result cheerily declared, you're already toast. Kate Washington's new book, Already Toast, Caregiving and Burnout in America, is the story of one woman's struggle to care for her seriously ill husband and a revealing look at the role unpaid family caregivers play in society that fails to provide them with structural support. Kate Washington is an essayist, food writer, currently serves as the dining critic for the Sacramento Bee. Her work has appeared for in many publications, including the Washington Post, uh, Eater, Catapult, McSweeney's, Internet Tendency. She lives in Northern California, and you can find her at Kate Washington, uh, kwashington.com. Kate Washington joins us uh, for the hour. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Appreciate you uh, being with us. Um, I wonder about your, I mean, with, with your whole whole story being a caregiver and the very, very stressful, and during COVID, uh, how did that affect your, I guess, your, your, your daytime gig, um, Dining Critic? Well, during COVID, I've essentially been a- unable to serve as a dining critic. Um, indoor dining was shut down here in Sacramento, where I live, for the bulk of the past year. And because one of my husband's after effects from his cancer and stem cell transplant is immune suppression, I wouldn't have been comfortable with indoor dining in any case. And also wasn't really comfortable with outdoor dining. Um, we are we are actually both now vaccinated and kind of considering how to return to that. But I think it's a, a tough time for restaurants and not a time I want to be criticizing places necessarily. Um, we may be focusing a little more on um, positive spotlights going forward. But it was certainly a question to consider, you know, the pandemic implications of any kind of dining or any kind of venturing out in the world, uh, given my husband's health issues. Yeah, I wondered about that. I, I, I expected this would have affected you in that way. Um, so, uh, tell us, so I want to, of course, get into your story, but tell us, um, about life before Brad got sick, your, your husband. Uh, first of all, you, you guys met in a PhD program, I think, right? We did. We were both in a literature program. He was studying, uh, modernist or 20th century British literature, and I was studying Victorian British literature. So close, but not quite the same fields, but, but pretty close. And um, we were married in 1999. We moved to Sacramento full-time in 2004 and had a daughter in 2005, another daughter in 2009. Um, Brad was diagnosed in 2015, so our children were nine and five. Um, My younger girl was in kindergarten, and we just kind of had that feeling of like, okay, like we've made it to the elementary school years, and... We're going to have a little more time for ourselves, a little more time to focus on professional life, as well as kind of the busy juggle of parenting of kids in school. Um, but, you know, past the intense baby and toddler time. And that was when he found lumps on his on his jawline and was kind of confused about that and said, should I go to the doctor? And I was like, you should definitely go to the doctor. He'd, he'd lost a lot of weight. Um, and... It took several months to get a diagnosis, um, in part because his cancer was so rare. It was, a, it was a type of lymphoma, but there are many, many types of lymphoma, and this one was a, an unusual one that his oncology center, which is a, an, an academic, a, a big teaching hospital, had not really seen before, so it took a long time to pin down exactly what it was. The initial diagnosis was, they called it indolent lymphoma, which led to some kind of black humor, I guess. 
<laughs> yeah, we kind of left the appointment where the doctor said, oh, it may be an indolent form, saying, oh, you have lazy cancer. Like, it's not going to bug us. It's going to lie there and not really do very much. But, um, you know, that was essentially a guess because the oncologist hadn't really seen that exact form, and it did seem to be progressing slowly when it was first diagnosed. But a few months after that, that was in February of 2015. So in early May, Brad ended up having a really frightening kind of sudden emergency involving coughing up a lot of blood. And it turned out that he had um, had a lung tumor growing quite aggressively and that it, it burst. Um, so the cancer had really turned aggressive kind of surprising everybody. And that was the moment when I really felt plunged into a world of caregiving. You know, I we were sitting down to dinner. It was like a nice summery evening, um, just about this time of year, a little later. Um, and, you know, he called me from the bathroom and was like, I, uh, you know, this is freaky, terrifying. And it was. And so we grabbed a neighbor to sit with the girls um, while I drove into the hospital and ran every red light on the way to the hospital on that Saturday evening. And that was kind of the the baptism by fire into pretty intense caregiving, as it were. Um, and then he has to have a stem cell transplant, which is just, just you know, I, I, chemotherapy as well, just uh, anything that, that, that you could you want to talk about with cancer, it seems like he went through. Sure. And, you know, I'm sure many, many of your listeners have been through the process of receiving cancer treatment or seeing a loved one go through it, it can have so many different variations and all really difficult for families. Um, in Brad's case, you know, he had emergency chemotherapy after um, going into the hospital and continued with chemotherapy all through that summer. He, he happened to need it um, on an inpatient basis because he needed a really slow drip. So it was like four days of chemo every time he had to go in. So that meant, you know, he would go into the hospital and I would be home with the girls and it was during summer and kind of a strange summer where, you know, the girls and I would sometimes, you know, go up to the mountains or go try to do fun things. And he was in the hospital and it was, it was a very strange period. Um, and it seemed that he, he went into remission, but very, very briefly after that, uh, those cycles of chemotherapy he relapsed really, really quickly, and it turned out the cancer was even more aggressive than, than they had previously thought. So the only real available treatment for the kind of cancer he had was a stem cell transplant, which is um, uses donor cells to essentially implant a new immune system. Um, Brad was really fortunate that his brother uh, was a match as a donor. Um, his brother uh, lives in Canada, where Brad is from, and so he flew down to do the, and did testing, and um, then we spent kind of that fall of 2015 prepping for the coming stem cell transplant, which he had in January of, of 2016. So uh, at a certain point, uh, you know, you're getting ready to take uh, Brad home, the hospital says, well, he needs to go home, right? Even though you do yeah. say you write that he still needs a level of care you thought could only be given at the hospital, and you he needs an IV, and you're given a crash course in that, but you say it's terrifying. I can imagine. Yeah, this that actually happened a, a couple of different times. When he first went home after the initial hospitalization, he needed IV antibiotics and was on oxygen because his, his lung had collapsed. So I got a little experience and taste of that when he first came home in that summer of 2015, and then fast forward to the time after his stem cell transplant, he was actually hospitalized for over four months during the wake of the stem cell transplant because his complications were really intense. He lost his vision, lost the ability to walk. He was he was very close to, uh, to passing away, as his doctors made very made very clear to me. And as you can imagine from somebody who's been isolated in a hospital room for, for over four months, he was incredibly deconditioned, um, just had, you know, very little ability to manage his own kind of activities of daily living, needed a lot of help. And so when he went home after the stem cell transplant, um, 
you know, he also needed um, IV nutrition every night. He was unable to eat. He'd spent a few, several weeks unable to eat by mouth at all. And so they sent him home with this uh, IV nutrition, and that would come in these big kits that he had a port. And it was my job to hook him up to that every night. Um, And it was a complicated process. And I worried constantly about introducing infection, about, you know, all of the different things. And it was it was a challenging thing for our family. We were also told um, by the doctors, you know, that he needed 24-hour-a-day attendance. He wasn't to walk across a room on his own and indeed really kind of couldn't. Um, and at that point, my in-laws, who were an incredible support to us through this time, had been with us and helping for, for months. Um, you know, we had family and community support, but the ordeal kind of went on so long that, you know, it's, it's not like you can ask friends to come in and do 24-hour-a-day attendance to a very a very ill person. Um, so we were really fortunate to have enough resources to hire in-home caregivers to help with just being there with him, making sure he got his medications on this incredibly complicated schedule, um, and helping with all of the other, you know, complexities of running a household with a very, very sick and fragile person in it. And I think it's a common story that I'm sure a lot of listeners have seen in their own families now that a lot of pretty high-level medical care falls to families when people are discharged from the hospital. There's kind of a, a gap, as I write in the book, between, um, you know, too well for the hospital and too sick for home. And the people often closing that gap are, are family caregivers who, as I was, are often taken very much by surprise at the intensity of the tasks that um, they're asked to do. So you're thrust into this world, um, and uh, as you said, you have some resources, right? And it's, it's some family help and some friends. I guess some caregivers don't have that, right? Um, but uh, talk about the, the. I mean, I mean, you write about this, and I, and I can imagine it crushing, um, endless, um, whatever adjective you want to use. Um, uh, Talk about that a little, a little bit. To what, uh, what the feelings that come up as this goes on day after day after day after day. Yeah, I mean, I think you you summed it up very well. It's uh, day after day after day, and you know, there's incremental improvement in in Brad's case, but it it's very intense to have a, a critically sick person in the home um, on top of the emotional burden of being you know, terrified and concerned for the the person you love. Um, You know, there are the physical demands, the um, mental load demands, you know, and and in my case, I also had the responsibility of, you know, my young children and childhood doesn't stop. And there are millions of people, you know, it's called sandwich caregiving, um, you know, women, it's disproportionately women, though, of course, there are many, many wonderful male caregivers out there, and I don't want to discount that contribution. Um, But, you know, there are millions of sandwich caregivers caring for elderly parents, um, as well as children in the home. In my case, it was was a spouse. But um, there's an increasing trend, I think, of people having multiple caregiving responsibilities, um, Demographically, we're just heading for a future in which more and more family caregivers will need to do more and more to to care for family members. We already have in this country 53 million family caregivers um, caring for um, adult family members or, or close friends, and that number is likely only going to grow as the baby boomers continue to age. If you just joined us, we're talking with Kate Washington. Her new book out now is called Already Toast, Caregiving and Burnout in America. And you can find her at her website, which is kawashington.com. So we'll have more following this break. Support for Utah Public Radio programming comes from our members and the American Festival Chorus and Orchestra. 
performing Mozart's Requiem 1 p.m. Saturday, July 10th at the Ellen Eccles Theatre. Proceeds from the concert will benefit the Utah Festival Opera and Musical Theatre. Ticket information at utahfestival.org. As you know, NPR is celebrating 50 years. You've been hearing some memories from UPR staff members, and now it's your turn. Thursday on Access Utah, we'll open the phone lines and ask you to share your most memorable NPR or UPR moment or person or program or story. And you can email us right now to upraccess at gmail.com. That's upraccess at gmail.com. We hope you join us Thursday morning at 9 here on Utah Public Radio. Hi, I'm Natalie Gochner. I represent the Political Center. Join us for both sides of the aisle from KCPW. A weekly debate over politics, policy, and current issues facing the state of Utah, featuring voices representing the right, the center, and the left. Both Sides of the Aisle attempts to help you understand the important questions facing residents of this state while proving that Republicans and Democrats can sit in a small room and have a meaningful conversation. Tune in Thursday mornings at 10 here on Utah Public Radio. In the United States, women make about 82% of what men make for comparable work. And the numbers in Utah are more extreme, where a woman earns approximately 71 cents for every dollar a man earns. I'm Dr. Susan Madsen, founding director of the Utah Women in Leadership Project. In our next podcast episode, we'll dig into the gender wage gap and what it means for Utah women. Listen July 1st at utwomen.org. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in April. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Kate Washington. Her new book is called Already Toast, Caregiving and Burnout in America. Uh, It's out and available now. You're welcome to join this conversation if you would like with your question or comment by email to upraccess at gmail.com, upraccess at gmail.com. There are you know, lots of impactful stories here uh, along with the data points. Um, I, I was very struck by a story you tell. I'm not sure where this was in your journey of caregiving. Um, by the way, uh, if, again, if you've just joined us, uh, Kate Washington's husband, uh, Brad, learned that he had cancer. And they were a young couple at the time, professionals with ascending careers, parents to two small children. And uh, Brad's diagnosis stripped those identities away. He became a patient and she his caregiver on quite the journey. So, Kate Washington, you tell this story uh, at a this certain day you have a point with the oncologist. You're just at your wit's end and essentially cried during the whole uh, during the whole appointment um, and the oncologist uh, essentially kind of scolds you and, and says you need to take better care of yourself yeah you know and I'm sure I'm sure he meant it very well and it took me really aback because I was so raw and so exhausted um, you know he wanted me to be doing better and to be able to support Brad. And it for me, it really felt like a moment of, like, uh, the only point of me is to support and care for this man. And I also really felt at the time, you know, I don't have time to care for myself. I am worn out caring for everybody else. Um, and I think that, you know, for me, what a story like that ultimately points to is that we can't throw back the responsibility of self-care onto already burned out and stressed out caregivers. And, you know, I think this applies across a lot of different kinds of forms of care, you know, parents um, as well as caregivers for the sick. Um, we need systemic supports in place that really make this vital work more possible and less of a strain on the people who are doing it because it's better for family caregivers if we have support and it's better for the care recipients as well. You mentioned earlier, I want to focus on this now, uh, disproportionately caregivers are women. And you did do do a shout out to there are men who are caregivers, Mm -hmm. do do an excellent job. Um, I, I want to read this. This really struck me. You quote Ann Boyer. Um, so this is Ann Boyer. In the waiting rooms, the labor of care meets the labor of data. Wives fill out their husbands' forms. Mothers fill out their children's. Sick women fill out their own. 
Yeah, um, Ann Boyer's book is is wonderful, and I really recommend it. She's writing from the the point of view of a patient with breast cancer, but has a lot of pays a lot of attention to care issues around it. Um, I think something else that that quotation really points to is that caregiving is really multifaceted. You know, you might the picture that might float up in somebody's mind on hearing the word caregiver might be like, you know, getting somebody into bed or helping with medication administration, but there's also the bureaucracy of caregiving. There's navigating healthcare systems, which are unbelievably complex and can be, you know, an incredible time suck, as I'm sure all of your listeners have had experience trying to call a health insurance or call a doctor's office and and get assistance, and it can be maddening and challenging, um, even with good insurance and um, you know, very difficult with with access issues. Um, there's memory work and and communication work with with um, members of the extended family and of the community can be a part of caregiving as well. Um, so there's a huge range of things that fall into this broad umbrella. And for me, it really parallels with. Um, the idea of mental load or invisible labor that also falls disproportionately on women in family structures. And I was trying to tie um, the work of caregiving to, to that broad issue in my book. And this is, you know, in many ways structural, right? And, and the way we raise girls and boys and uh, expectations of women versus men, right? Even you write about uh, the, this, this, this is seen in our literature as well. Yeah, yeah, I do. Um, you mentioned earlier that my husband and I met in graduate school, and I do kind of throw it back a little bit to that graduate training here and there in the book. I talk about um, some favorite literary works um, that I really returned to for comfort reading when I was in the thick of caregiving, like Jane Eyre or Middlemarch, some Victorian classics. And then when I reread them, I noticed that the caregivers were there in the books. And you know, quietly doing their work, and it was something that I hadn't paid a lot of attention to as a as a twenty something reader, but that really struck me uh, in my forties when I was when I was in the middle of it. Um, you know, I think we have a lot of cultural expectations around how women will care for the people in their family and for their community. Um, for me, that often felt like a lot of pressure. Like I ought to be joyfully doing this and giving up, um, you know, many of the professional and personal things that were important to me to drop everything to to care for Brad. And I, I want to be clear that I, I did want, of course, to care for him, and I very much wanted him to survive, and it was an urgent question. You know, he was very, very sick. Um, but I also didn't want to lose myself entirely in doing it. And I think it can be... Um, a really difficult emotional thing for a lot of people, you know, to be pulled into caregiving and then to feel negative emotions, sometimes resentment, sometimes anger, and to feel like those aren't acceptable. And part of the reason I wrote my book and tried to be honest about some of those negative feelings, which was, you know, not always easy to to reflect back on those, um, was to help others who might be in that situation feel validated or more seen. Um, you know, it's caregiving can be a really tough role that often takes place in um, significant isolation behind closed doors. Um, you know, if you're caring for a spouse as I was or somebody to whom you're really close, you often also at the same time lose a significant support person because they are the patient and you become their support person, so that mutuality of support is lost as well. Um, so there are just so many different facets to this role that can be really challenging for people. And I think for for such a common and large role that's growing, it's culturally a little bit under-recognized as well. You know, I, I wasn't seeing... At the time I was contemplating this book and writing it, I wasn't seeing that represented a lot in the broader culture. And actually, now I, I feel like caregiving has really come to the fore as something that's front of mind for many, many people. Um, you know, the it's 
on the national agenda, and I think the strains of the pandemic have unfortunately really called to all of our attention how much we need that human care and connection and how damaging it is when that's not available and not supported. Do you think that will have uh, an effect? You you point out in an op-ed piece in the New York Times recently that uh, Biden administration is proposing some things. Do you think uh, the things like he's proposing will be passed and uh, there be progress? Well, I'm certainly not a a policy expert, but I find it very, very heartening that um, some of those proposals are going forward. There were beginnings to them in the big coronavirus relief package. Um, Paid leave, paid family leave is now on the table. Um, The big infrastructure bill um, provided a lot of funding for paid care workers, which is a an issue that's very much interlinked with family caregivers because if paid care workers are more accessible and people can get those home and community-based services, um, then that, of course, then in turn eases the strain on family caregivers. And it's my understanding that there are more proposals and um, more um, possible policy changes coming coming in the future. Um, Biden's campaign plank around caregiving included um, proposals for caregiver tax credits and other kinds of support that would um, ease some of the really severe economic burdens on family caregivers, which I want to point out also really fall disproportionately on particularly Black and Latina caregivers. Um, You know, there's, there are a lot of challenges and difficulties linked with, um, you know, different populations have different rates of family caregiving, begin caregiving younger often, especially um, in the Black and Latina communities, and um, face a higher economic burden and a higher kind of lifelong burden that can be really devastating for families that may already be on the edge. I think you said this earlier in the conversation, you write about this, AARP and other organizations, it is hard to get an accurate estimate. Estimate what some fifty million or so uh, folks are involved in in uh, in caregiving, intense caregiving for their loved ones. Yeah, the the um, AARP number from twenty twenty was fifty three million caregivers, um, and that report is really fascinating and breaks down a lot of different things, including average ages, time spent on different kinds of tasks of caregiving, the economic burden that I was just speaking to um, earlier, and all kinds of demographic um, breakdowns of how caregiving functions in different populations in the U.S. Um, I also want to point to some of the economic numbers. Um, Some studies have shown that, you know, 50 to 70 percent of Caregivers have had to reduce work hours or or leave work. Um, And an older study estimated the economic value of the work family caregivers are doing, and this was a fairly conservative estimate, actually, at $470 billion worth of unpaid labor a year. So you can just imagine the kind of worth that family caregivers are providing, not only to their direct charges, but to the economy and the healthcare system as a whole. It's it's really staggering. Yeah, that does illustrate, and you write about this uh, directly, these are circles that ripple out, right? It's not just 53 million individuals, 53 million families, It's uh, and it, it ripples out from there. Yeah, yeah, and, and as I said earlier, it's growing. You know, the... Um, the ages of caregivers are getting younger. More and more millennials are getting pulled in to, to caregiving. I am I'm happen to be Gen X, and I'm very close to what the average age of a caregiver is, which is 49. I, I'm 48 now. Um, but as the baby boomers age and the oldest of the baby boomers are hitting the age of 75 this year, the need for care is going to grow and outstrip the populations that are coming up behind. And so this is really a systemic issue that we have to grapple with and that other 
rapidly aging countries have been looking at and grappling with for a long time. Um, but it, it's going to affect, I mean, if it doesn't affect all families already, it's going to soon. And I'm sure that every listener out there has a story of caregiving in their family, has an elderly relative, has a grandma or grandpa who, you know, needs care. It's, it's a very common and very universal human story. You know, we're, we're all born into needing care and all of us will need it along the way in, in some way. So, you know, if you're not a caregiver now or in need of care, I would say to people, pre- prepare for that to be part of your life. And it's a little under discussed. So, well, let's take another break. We'll come back with uh, our last segment with uh, Kate Washington. You can find her at kawashington.com. Her latest book is out now. That's what we're talking about right now. Already Toast, Caregiving and Burnout in America. Before we go to break, uh, Kate Washington, remind us what, uh, what the title is about. We talked about this a little earlier, but if people have just joined us. Yeah, so Already Toast refers to me taking a quiz on caregiver burnout after a doctor kind of chided me a little for not taking better care of myself. Um, and when I got the quiz results, uh, up popped this burned piece of bread in the in the result, and it said, you're already toast, like, you're already burned out. And um, I that phrase never left me, so I used it as the title for my book. And uh, the, yeah, the the illustration on the cover is is you know some burnt toast. It's <laughs> I mean, it's kind of some dark humor, but also illustrates. And I want to get into some of the uh, some more about how you feel and uh, how you deal with the stress uh, following this break. We'll have more following this. Support for Utah Public Radio programming comes from our members and the USU Lyric Repertory Company, presenting the Thanksgiving play. Four writers work to create a politically correct Thanksgiving play that is historically accurate, avoids all stereotypes, and doesn't offend anyone. Performances through July 17th. Details at lyricrep.org. Support also comes from Westside Coffee Company on 100 West in Logan offering breakfast and lunch with vegan and gluten-free options. Kitchen open from 7 a.m. to 3 p.m., pastry and non-cooked items available all day until 6 p.m., Monday through Sunday. Details at thewestsidecoffeecompany.com. Hey, this week on The Splendid Table, we take your cooking questions with the always effervescent Carla Hall. She goes hard on grilling, we get some great cookout sides, and she digs into her bag of catering tricks to tell us how to make deviled eggs for any occasion. All that and much more this week on The Splendid Table. Sunday at noon here on Utah Public Radio. Hi, I'm Steve Williams, host of Jazz Time here on Utah Public Radio. I hope you'll join me Sunday evenings for a journey through the world of jazz music, from ragtime to bop, from Havana to Logan, Utah. Tune in for a bit of history, commentary, the occasional interview, and of course, all that jazz. Jazz time, Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock on Utah Public Radio. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in April. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour is Kate Washington. Um, and she is an essayist, food writer, serves as a dining critic for the Sacramento Bee. Her work has appeared in many publications, including the Washington Post, Eater, Catapult, McSweeney's Internet Tennessee. She lives in Northern California. And uh, several years ago, her husband, Brad, uh, discovered some lumps along his jawline, I think, first, and that, that what turned out to, to be a cancer and uh, pretty intense, had to have a stem cell transplant, a chemotherapy, and um, so uh, he became the patient and she his caregiver. And so uh, her book is Already Toast, Caregiving and Burnout in America. You can join the conversation by email if you'd like, access, upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. I want to emphasize, maybe here at the beginning of this segment, uh, Kate Washington, the uh, you know, you know, the, the feelings, the desperation that, uh, you know, uh, that caregivers, these some 53 million folks are feeling that the, the rest of us 
maybe to help us bridge that gap and understand a little more, you tell a, a story about how I think this is fairly early on um, that you were you felt so trapped and terrified. You you said you called a suicide hotline. You weren't sure you're going to harm yourself. You just wanted to hear a compassionate voice. Yeah, that that's true, and it, you know it's not. Um, it it's something that is a, a little a little tough to look back on. That was um, just as my husband was coming home from the hospital after his stem cell transplant with extremely high medical needs, and he was very very fragile. Um, and after after a stem cell transplant, there's really high risk of infection because of you know uh, the immune com compromisation that uh, he had and uh, so I was very worried about keeping him out of the hospital, keeping him okay and felt really alone that night and really not, not sure where to turn. It was the middle of the night and I was anxious, couldn't sleep because he was coming home the next day and um, since that time I've actually learned that there are hotlines specifically for caregivers. I have a short list of resources on my website that could point people to that um, if that's something that people that people need. Um, you know, there are resources out there for caregivers, including support groups, including um, you know, social workers through the hospital, though those are often, you know, quite overburdened. Um, I think the need is so great that uh, these resources can sometimes be a little difficult to access or you need to be very proactive as a caregiver to get put in touch with the resources that will help you. And if there's one thing that caregivers typically do not have, it is the time and wherewithal to seek out, you know, additional resources that might feel not completely urgent because often you're so bombarded with urgent needs on all sides that... Um, you know, taking the time for that support group or that therapy session, you know, if you have access to therapy, which I, I wish everybody going through this uh, did, um, can be really hard. You know, I think there's there can be a real sense of erasure. Another story that I that I tell in my book that I think of often is one time when I went to the pharmacy to pick up a medication for me. I was so used to dealing only and primarily with my husband's medical needs and with getting medications and calling people on his behalf all the time that they asked my date of birth and I didn't give them mine, I gave them his. And, you know, if there's one basic fact about yourself to, to forget and blank on one's own date of birth, really, for me, was a moment of like, oh, boy, like, I am in this really deep, like, you know, it was just a, a momentary slip. But to me, it was also telling. And I'm sure that that's something many listeners, you know, can identify with or if they've been in caregiving roles. And, you know, another thing I really wanted to point to is that these caregiving roles can really last a very, very long time. You know, in, in Brad's case, he had a crisis-level illness, and he was very ill and had intense needs for a couple of years and needing and needed help and, you know, support in the years since somewhat less intensely. But he returned to, he's now chronically ill and, you know, has a disability and is unable to work, but he is much more independent. I am very fortunate as a caregiver in in that sense. You know, millions of people are caring for people with degenerative diseases or conditions that do not alleviate in any way over time. In fact, they worsen, and so needs can become much higher and the challenges for caregivers and for the loved ones they're caring for only become more intense. And um, that long-term caregiving, I think, can be an incredibly intense stress for people and is something that, you know, we as a society really need to look at easing. One more illustration of the intense stress, and I want to move on to other related topics. I was very struck by you. At a certain point, you're very open and honest. And you, you talk about 
what probably goes through the minds of many caregivers who are in this tense situation, it kind of musing on, you know, never, I don't think seriously considering it, but musing on, well, you know, I could leave. And, and then thinking through, uh, well, here are the reasons why I won't. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that definitely, you know, I had my wallet with me. I thought about, like, I've got a credit card and the airport is 20 minutes away. And I never really seriously considered doing that. But that escapist fantasy of, like, what if I could just go be on a beach in Hawaii and forget all of this was pretty powerful. Um you know, it wasn't something that I was seriously considering doing, in particular, you know, because of my two children who are already struggling with the the challenges of their dad's situation. There was a, a long period when he was hospitalized when they were unable to see him at all for a long time, and that was that was very, very tough on them, of course. And I, you know, never seriously considered abandoning them or him. But that fantasy floating through my mind was there, and there were times when in lieu of turning that car around to the airport, you know, I just would scream in the car because that's where there was nobody to hear me. You know, I would be on the way between the hospital and home, and that was the time when I had, you know, moments of aloneness where I could just let it out. Um, You know, as I mentioned earlier in our conversation, I was fortunate to have family support, um, particularly from my in-laws. So I was able to take some of those respites and breaks that like relieved the pressure enough that I didn't actually enact those, those leaving fantasies, but you know, they, they pop up and I'm sure it's something people who've been in a really stressful situation of any sort can, can identify with. You write about uh, some do's and don'ts of uh, if you're a friend who wants to help. Uh, For example, uh, don't, you say, uh, just ask, is there anything I can do? Because that just creates a pressure on the person to come up with something that the person can do. What what are some do's and don'ts? Well, I think think that's a, a good one. And don't get me wrong, you know, when people ask what can I do, I was, you know, grateful because I knew they wanted to help and that it was coming from a good and well-intentioned place. But sometimes it did have this sort of like, oh, what do I tell them? And pressure to come up with the with the perfect thing or the thing that would suit them. Um, I would say, you know, for me, it was often also hard to hear a kind of like, stay positive or you got this kind of, which again, I knew was incredibly well-intentioned, but it also sort of felt like positive. How am I going to, like, that's not that's not on the table, you know. This is this is too hard, and I wanted to kind of retain my own feelings for myself. Um, I I think there's a great reason why taking somebody a meal is a really classic support. You know, it's literally nourishing and um, takes away a daily task that can be just the last thing a super busy and stressed person wants to think about at the end of the day is like how to feed the family. Um, so that dropped off meal is, um, is a really critical support. And, um, one little tip along those lines is put everything in disposable containers. Like don't make the person give back the, you know, the heirloom baking dish that was your grandma's. Like you, you don't want to, to do that. Get the foil, get the foil bake. Um, baking tray. Um, you know, I loved getting, you know, occasionally I would get a text from a friend that was, you know, I'm going to Target. Do you need something? You know, like right then and there. And it would be like, oh God, we're out of laundry detergent. Could you grab that for me? And it, I never would have proactively texted a friend and said like, could you go and fetch me some laundry detergent? Because that was kind of a level of ask that felt that would have felt presumptuous. You know, I think, you know, a lot of us are conditioned to manage things ourselves and it's, it can be hard to ask for help. So when you have a friend who's in a stressful situation, and especially if you know they run in a more independent kind of direction, you know, offering the thing proactively to them can be a really great way to help them feel seen and to really, to really give, that support. And then I think the, you know, the check-in text or email that relieves pressure just by saying like, 
I'm sure you're busy, no need to respond, but I'm just thinking of you, you know, can be a really compassionate and nice thing so that, you know, if somebody's busy at a hospital bedside or in distress, they don't have to feel like they have to reply right away is it's just a nice way to offer somebody a little solidarity in a tough time. You talk about uh, how, uh, obviously, the, the roles change, right? Uh, Brad, seriously ill, uh, became in need of care. You became the caregiver. Lots of ups and downs. Uh, obviously, you know, just an incredibly stressful experience for him and for you, and I'm mm-hmm. sure for your kids. But you talk about how you've you've had to rebuild your marriage and, and your lives. Uh, talk a little bit about about that, how that process goes. Yeah, I think that's um, a particular kind of challenge with with spousal caregiving is that you shift that more equal or more partnership kind of relationship when somebody becomes very ill and potentially uh, somewhat dependent. Um, It is a big role change, and uh, role changes can happen a lot with other kinds of caregiving, too. I know that people who are caring for parents or elders can have that challenge of suddenly like the child is more like the parent and that can be dislocating and really tough on the relationship. Um, You know, for, for us, there was the added complication of the change in the parenting role. Um, You know, we had been, you know, co-parents in a lot of ways and that, kind of fell away when he wasn't able to take an active parenting role. And he was, you know, he wasn't happy with that. He didn't like having to step out of that. He'd been, you know, a really dedicated dad and had, you know, been coaching Lucy, our younger daughter's soccer team, you know, around the time he got got sick and, and wanted to continue with those kinds of things and was just very much unable to. Um it's been a slow rebuilding process and rethinking how our marriage will work. There's also a lot of changes in our conditions of of our lives because he's now, instead of being, you know, a faculty member at his university, he is, uh, he has a disability retirement. And so he's at home and um, has, you know, a very different life than what he expected. He just recently turned 50. And so it's been a huge adjustment for him to adjust to a type of disability and um, to a different life than than he envisioned um, and a different situation for me as well to rethink, you know, how is our marriage going to look? What are we going to enjoy doing together? You know, some of those more active things like, you know, getting out into hiking or, you know, travel are are a little bit off the table. And those sound small, you know, I don't want to be just complaining like, oh, we can't go on trips. But it's also, you know, the ways you spend your your life together and the things you enjoy doing are all kinds of losses. I mean, I think that's a kind of loss that has become very widespread for millions of families during the pandemic and the dislocation of you know, changing your entire way of life around such conditions is is profound. So it has been and continues to be a real work in progress. We just have one minute left, uh, just very, very quickly. Uh, what's top of mind for you? What's the big takeaway that you'd like listeners to um, to take away from this conversation about caregiving? Well, I'd just love to say to listeners, you know, if you're in a caregiving role, you're not alone. Um, ask for help. In the broader culture, I would love to see much greater support and systems to shore up the essential work of family caregivers. It's been a hidden topic for, for too long, and it's something we all need to reckon with. We've been talking with Kate Washington, and her new book is out, uh, Already Toast, Caregiving and Burnout in America, and you can find her at kawashington.com. Kate Washington, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's the Beehive Archive on Utah Public Radio. I'm Megan Weiss. As the population of the American West grew in the mid-20th century, so did the demand for water. This week, 
Learn how the fight over a proposed dam in the middle of Dinosaur National Monument gave birth to the modern conservation movement. First this. I'm Jody Graham, Director of Utah Humanities. Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by Utah Humanities with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T. D. Foundation. We are proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories and hope you will tune in each week for the Beehive Archive. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. Echo Park sits at the confluence of the Green and Yampa Rivers, nestled under the sandstone cliffs of Dinosaur National Monument. In 1953, the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation recommended this remote canyon as the site for a dam, one of several proposed for its Colorado River storage project. The plan sparked a major battle between the demand for water and desire for preservation, and Echo Park became a rallying cry for the conservation movement. The idea to build dams along the Green River was not new, but the post-World War II population boom created a demand for water and hydropower that could not be ignored. The Secretary of the Interior supported the Echo Park plan, citing the area's narrow canyons as ideal for a dam and reservoir. But the proposal, which would alter the landscape of a designated national monument, alarmed the National Park Service. Conservation groups agreed and saw the Bureau of Reclamation plan as a deliberate threat to America's public lands. The Echo Park controversy became national news. Writers and journalists weighed in, and public outcry against the dam was fierce. Leading the opposition was the Council of Conservationists, a coalition of nine groups who mobilized their members to defend Dinosaur National Monument and the park system as a whole. This was the first time they had worked together to defeat a plan of such magnitude. It was helpful to their cause that travel to national parks had risen sharply through the post-war years, and that well-known groups, such as the Audubon Society and the Sierra Club, publicly fought components of the project. Thanks to this grassroots campaign, the Echo Park Dam was never built, and in 1956, Congress prevented the development of dams in national parks or monuments. But the victory was bittersweet. Sierra Club director David Bauer always regretted the trade-off they made to stop the dam at Echo Park, which was to let the dam at Glen Canyon proceed unopposed. This compromise demonstrates both the power and limitations of environmentalism, a movement that continues to impact policy in the increasingly arid and thirsty West. Find sources and past episodes of the Beehive Archive at utahumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of Utah Humanities, I am Megan Weiss. UPR congratulates the Cash Celebration of Women's Suffrage, recipient of the prestigious 2021 Albert B. Quarry Award by the American Association for State and Local History, recognizing volunteer organizations that best display the qualities of vigor, scholarship, and imagination in their work. Utah Public Radio was part of the Cash Celebration of Women's Suffrage Committee that created a traveling exhibit to commemorate three significant milestones, 1870 when a Utah woman was the first to vote in the modern nation under an equal suffrage law, 1920 when the 19th Amendment was passed and prohibited voting discrimination on the basis of sex, and 1965 when the Voting Rights Act was passed which prohibits racial discrimination in voting. Congratulations to the many groups and individuals who helped with the cash celebration of women's suffrage. A statewide service of Utah State University's College of Humanities and Social Sciences. This is KUSR Logan, KUSUFM Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, Moab, KUST, Price, KCEU, and streaming online at upr.org.